This podcast is supported by Americans for Medical Progress and was founded and created through the Michael D. Hare Fellowship, awarded annually to support projects that inform and educate the public about the critical role of animal research in furthering medical progress. The fellowship honors the late Dr. Michael Hare, a renowned board-certified laboratory animal veterinarian who dedicated his career to scientific and medical advancements and who was deeply committed to animal welfare and advocacy. Welcome, everyone, into this episode of Lab Rat Chat. Today, we have a very exciting guest for you. He's going to talk to us all about diabetes and different ways to, you know, maybe even manage and maybe even prevent the disease if you're suffering from that or know people that are suffering from it or if you have a history of it in your family. So before we get in to all of that and before we let the guest introduce himself to you all, I want to, as I mentioned in our last episode, I stopped doing this in the introduction to our episodes only because I felt like it was being repetitive and you all hear this every single time you listen. But it does really help if you go out to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and now Spotify, where you can rate and review our show. I don't know if you can actually leave a review in Spotify, but you can rate it. And it does significantly impact the viewership of our podcast, if you will. Just the ability for other people that are looking for science-like podcasts, medicine-like podcasts, or trying to educate themselves on the use of animals and research or anything like that. It makes our podcast more prevalent and more relevant to search terms. So it does help a whole bunch of you guys can get out there, rate and review our podcast. It just makes it more visible, really, for everyone to find us and to listen to our important message that we have. And it just keeps our podcast more sustainable and going for a long time. So the reason I'm starting to do it again is simply because we saw a drop in our reviews and a drop in people rating the podcast. So obviously, it does help if we say it in the beginning. So if you've already done all of that, you know the drill. You tell your family and friends about it, have them do it as well. And then there's also uh, the skip forward features. So if you've already heard this and you're tired of hearing it, you can just skip forward. That's the beauty of podcasts. Like I said, our podcast guest today is Dr. Roy Taylor, who's visiting us all the way from across the pond, they like to say, right? So he's over in the UK, and it's been a doozy trying to schedule you. We tried to do this for National Diabetes Month, which we have here in the US, which was in November, I believe. And you're a busy person, obviously, with practicing medicine and your research and all that. And Danielle's busy. We're all busy. So just life in general has prevented us from doing this in November. But nonetheless, I thought it was important and to still have you on and tell our guests all about your research and how it's helped. I'll let you throw out numbers, but I'm guessing it's probably helped thousands of people just based upon the book reviews I've seen. I think you are our first guest with a book on Amazon and feel free to plug that into our listeners. So, but I'll let you tell yourself up to our listeners, introduce yourself to our listeners. So if you will, you know, Dr. Taylor, tell our listeners and Danielle and I about yourself. Well, Jeff, thank you very much for that introduction. I'm very pleased to be talking to you about this subject, which is so important to so many people. So I'm a doctor. I qualified four and a half decades ago. And since then, I've been listening to my patients, and that has fed into my research. Over the years, I've researched many topics from the very practical aspect to screening for eye disease and actually preventing blindness. I'm delighted to say that the system I was able to introduce has been dramatically effective in the UK for reducing blindness. So that's been the flavor of the work. But of course, 
One of the most practical questions for people with type 2 diabetes is, why me? Why did I get it? And so over the years, I've been trying to pick apart the nature of type 2 diabetes, what actually causes it. And so that's really why I'm sitting here today to talk to you. I know this might seem trivial coming from the world-renowned expert that you are, but maybe you could explain to our listeners the differences between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and then which type you focus your research on. I know you're going to elaborate on why, so that would be very helpful. Sure, Danielle. That's a good question and really important to clarify at the start. It's easiest to talk about type 1 diabetes first. That's typically the kind that occurs in children. So at an early age, they can get diabetes out of the blue, they will need insulin for life, and it's a very distinct disease. Now, that can also happen in adults. In fact, it can occur up to old age, sudden onset of what we regard as a type 1 diabetes, but that's due very much to a specific problem. It's that the insulin-producing cells in the pancreas get attacked by the body and stop functioning. So that's why insulin is always needed. Otherwise, it would be a fatal disease. And at this point, I'd just like to acknowledge that it's almost exactly to the day, 100 years, since Leonard Thompson had the very first injection of insulin. And we saw in a real-life person the blood sugar coming down. Dramatic occasion a century ago. And in the last century, we've been trying to understand more and more. So type 1. Very easy to understand. Type 2 has been a bit more of a mystery, and it's acquired all sorts of myths and rumors, and people have regarded it as a complex thing. Now, anything can be described as complex until we really understand it. But now it's very clear that type 2 diabetes is a kind of diabetes that comes on usually in later life, and it's related to body weight. That's it. Now, some people can develop diabetes at really quite an unremarkable weight. They're just very susceptible. Other people are in the category of a body mass index over 30, and they're regarded as being at risk. But when we look at the hard stats, in the UK, only 50%, one in two people, have a body mass index in that range. The rest are unremarkable. Now, my work has been picking apart exactly what's going on. So over the years, yes, of course, I look after type 1 and type 2, and especially diabetes in pregnancy, but my research has really focused on the nature of type 2 diabetes. So hopefully that clarifies the topic of today's discussion. It's this mysterious affliction of today's society, whereby epidemic proportions of people are getting this terrible condition which causes all sorts of problems, shortens life by at least eight years on average, kills more people than the COVID pandemic, and yet it's been a mystery. So that's where we're starting from. Yeah, I appreciate that explanation. Would you say that type 2 diabetes is also a disease that's more prevalent in more developed countries like the UK and the US versus where obesity is more prevalent versus countries that, you know, more like third world or developing countries? Do you see that for type 2 specifically? Yes, specifically for type 2. Just to comment on type 1 for a start, there's no relationship between body weight, diet, anything else with type 1. It's purely the susceptibility and then the process switched on by something we don't yet understand. But type 2, sure, the heavier on average a population is, the more diabetes there is. And this goes across the world. But there is a complexity to your question, Jeff, which I'm pleased to pick up on. 
and that is that in some countries it could still said to be developing. Type 2 diabetes also seems to be on a huge increase, and yet the measure of weight is not that great in the population. But these are populations who seem to be very susceptible to a relatively low level of fat. So while a man might be 300 pounds in weight in the US and be regarded as being a big chap, in, say, rural India, if a person was 150 pounds, they may be notably large in their village and have diabetes. So there is a susceptibility as well as the routine matter of, yes, if your weight goes up, you're more and more at risk. Okay. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting to make that kind of connection as well, just dependent upon developments of countries and how modern they are and what their diets are like and availability of fast food and all that sort of thing that plays a role, obviously, into health and, and weight and all of that. And when I think of type 1 and type 2 diabetes, too, as in veterinary school, we think type 1 diabetes in dogs and we think type 2 diabetes in cats, which I also think is an interesting correlation between the two. It's particularly fascinating in pointing out the stop-go gate for type 2 diabetes. If you're not susceptible to fat, if your beta cells, the insulin-producing cells, just can put up with fat being there without bothering, you'll be fine. So dogs, I understand, never get type 2 diabetes as such, and typically it would be a type 1 sort of process. And so some species are protected, some strains of rodents are protected, and that gives us considerable insight into the fact that some humans are protected. And we just extrapolate that a moment to consider very, very large people, say, technically a body mass index over 45. So they would look conspicuously large in the street. Yet, how many people in that range have got type 2 diabetes? And the answer is only 28%. Now, that's data from the US. So you see, even in conspicuously large people, type 2 diabetes does not occur in everybody. That's interesting. You would think that the higher your, I don't really like the BMI measure of, but you would think the heavier you are and the more fat you have around pancreas and, you know, other organs in your body, you'd be more susceptible. But that's an interesting one. And, I'm, and thanks for pointing that out. But this is also provides a kind of a perfect segue into like what we like to talk about on every episode is for our guests to kind of talk a little bit about your research and how animals have played a part in the understanding of diabetes or in your understanding and how you were able to kind of extrapolate the information from your research using animals to then apply it as a doctor to help patients and help clients in that way. A very long time ago, I did use rodents in my research to research particularly aspects of fat tissue, because early on, it seemed as though the answer had to be in the fat tissue, and so I concentrated on that. And we investigated both human fat that I took by biopsies from real patients, and also animal fat, rodents. And that gave us some sort of insight, but also came to a very distinct dead end, because what we showed was that the insulin receptor, which at the time in the early 1980s was regarded as the be-all and end-all of how the insulin molecule works, that insulin receptor was just not part of diabetes. Now, it's possible to get yourself very unpopular in scientific circles by cutting the legs off the current belief system. And so, of course, you then become a bit of a, a lone voice but you just have to put up with that in science and carry on producing the goods. So I moved on to muscle 
And again, studying rodent muscle was helpful, but it was human muscle that gave us the first big insights because we showed that exposing human muscle strips were taken from tissue obtained during orthopedic operations. Those human muscle strips would stop responding to insulin if we exposed them to fat. Now, that gave us a good clue into what was going on because we've got a lot of muscle in our body. Now, as a healthy-looking guy, Jeff, you've probably got at least 20 kilograms of muscle in your body. It's the largest metabolic organ in your body. And so our work led on from that to studying muscle biopsies that we took with a sampling device. Not a terribly popular procedure, but it was because of that lack of popularity. I looked around for other methods of really understanding what's happening inside our bodies. And I hit upon magnetic resonance. And at the time, some very exciting methods were being developed at Yale University with Professor Jerry Shulman. So I actually went to Yale University for a year, 1990 to 1991, and learned the techniques. And so we were able to see what was happening to humans. So this is the point at which I transitioned from any mention of animal research, which played a sort of bit part in my understanding of what's going on in people, to pure people research, which has followed ever since. And if I was to summarize the last 30 years at a gallop, I'd say we found out where the food was stored after eating. So if it's five hours since you had your breakfast, Jeff, I can announce that you've got about one third of the carbohydrate you've eaten stored in that big organ muscle. So there it is, it's muscle glycogen. It's been fairly rapidly assimilated. But if you were on the slow track to diabetes, say you were due to get diabetes at the age of 55, then you're likely to have quite low sensitivity to insulin in muscle after your meal you would have only stored less than 10% of your meal carbohydrate. Now, it's just a simple fact of metabolism that if you can't store glucose as glycogen, which is what everybody knows about, it's what athletes have to build up in their muscles, we have some of it in our liver, but if you can't do that, you've got to do something else with it, and there's only one pathway, and that is to transfer it into fat. The liver cleverly bangs together the glucose molecules and turns it into fat. So for a person who's on the slow, slippery slope to type 2 diabetes, they eat an ordinary meal and the body obligingly turns it into not only a high fat product, but also the worst kind of fat. Because the end product of turning glucose into fat is 100% saturated fat. Now, if you eat a nice steak and enjoy the fat around it, that's actually 50% saturated fat. There's about 50% monounsaturated fat, which is a good stuff. But if you eat excess carbohydrate, and by this I mean a very heavy sugar-laden diet, then all that excess has to be 100% saturated fat in the body. So you see, the damage is getting underway. And moving further forwards, we found that the muscle was interesting, but we could describe the starting point for diabetes. But we had to go to the liver to look further, because by then I'd looked at the liver and discovered, lo and behold, it's full of fat in diabetes. And lo and behold, that determined how sensitive to insulin it was. It's just another fact of life that the glucose level in your blood first thing in the morning depends entirely on the balance between insulin and the response of the liver to insulin. 
So if you've got a lot of fat in your liver, you don't respond very well, zoop, up goes the sugar level in the morning. It's a very simple relationship. So we tumble to this round about 2000 or so. Within a few years, I'd figured that it had to be a simple condition. It was such a common condition. Complexity cannot be part of it. And I wrote down a hypothesis. I suggested that fat built up in the liver, that that exported too much fat to the rest of the body, because that's what the liver does, that it would silt up in the pancreas and elsewhere, and it could actually prevent the insulin producing cells from working. So it wasn't killing them. It was just damping them down. And of course, this was testable. So coming to the high point of this long story, we were able to test this hypothesis to see if we could prove it was wrong. That's what you've got to do as a scientist. Was it wrong? Well, we took a group of very ordinary people with type 2 diabetes. We persuaded them to have a low-calorie diet, about 800 calories a day, that was designed to be palatable, designed to prevent hunger. It did all that. They lost about 33 pounds on average in the group. And guess what? The glucose fell to normal in seven days, but the change in the pancreas was much slower. And over eight weeks, for the very first time in human history, we observed the insulin-producing cell waking up from type 2 diabetes and causing people to go back to normal. So we published that in 2011. And that's where the whole business of weight loss-induced remission has started from. So a question about that. The people that have lived with this disease have advanced type 2 diabetes. They've been on insulin for years and years, completely insulin dependent as defined by, I don't know, doctors or their healthcare providers. Could your theories about this be useful for people who have been on insulin for a very long time? Yes. Although I just point out, Danielle, it's not just the theories because it's fine sitting in armchairs and having philosophy, but I deal with people sitting in front of me in the consultation. And so it's got to work. And so since that initial test of the hypothesis and showing if you take people now in that study just with quite short duration diabetes and get them to lose weight, the diabetes goes away. So over 90% chance of it going away. Well, we widened the focus and said, okay, will it work for long-duration diabetes? So our next study looked at exactly that question. So you're coming in bang on cue there. And what we showed in the counterbalance study was that, yes, in the first few years of diabetes, 9 out of 10, after 10 years, it was about 5 out of 10. And beyond 10 years in that study, we didn't find anyone who would go back to normal. Now, in clinical practice, I've come across several people who've had diabetes for a very long time and gone back to normal. But I have to emphasize, it's a low chance. So if someone comes to me and asks me precisely the question that you just asked me, Daniel, I have to say, look, the only way to find out is to suck it and see. Bite the bullet, lose this weight. I can show you how it's not difficult. Everybody tells me that after having done it. And we'll find out. But the chance of you getting back to normal is probably about one in 10. If it happens, wonderful. If it doesn't happen, there'll still be major benefits for you. So the answer is people who've had diabetes a long time might come back to normal, but it's more likely they'll just feel better, enjoy life much more, but not actually get rid of the diabetes. 
So hopefully that answers that specific question. I want to go back too to what you'd said about a low calorie diet, but does it also depend? Was it very strict in the sense of where those calories came from? Was it like a high protein, low carb, low fat type of diet? This is really important, Jeff, because over the years, over the decades, I've been involved with lots of people whom I've advised to lose weight. Now, in the old days, that was lose a bit of weight. But listening to what they had to say when they've come back and not been terribly successful, I knew what the major factors were that stopped people losing weight. And there were two biggies. One is hunger. Well, that's not surprising, you might say. And the other is the burden of daily worrying about what you've got to eat, how much to eat, can I eat that? Is this a level tablespoonful? It gets to people. And so I had to devise a diet which wouldn't be associated with much hunger and wouldn't be associated with difficult decisions at every mealtime. So having cast around and also read the old literature, I started out using liquid formula diets. So in other words, the only choice was whether to have the soup flavor or to have chocolate or strawberry or whatever, but it was one packet. You didn't have to think about quantity. And these formula diets can be made with quite a high protein content. It's about 26% in most of the products we've used compared with what you and I might eat, which would be 12% maybe of our intake, maybe a little more. So though we have a high protein diet, which is very acceptable and deals with the hunger nicely, but also one that happens to be high-ish carbohydrate. But this is the thing, the balance between carbohydrate and fat does not matter. You throw excess carbohydrate at your liver, turns it into fat. You cut out the carbohydrate. Well, it's got a clever workaround of using ketones. It's all absolutely routine physiology. It's turned into a, a mystical science by some people talking about ketogenic diets and all sort of mysteries. But no, it's none of that. It's purely the low calorie intake, but in a way that's not associated with difficult decisions and not particularly associated with hunger. The first 36 hours, yeah, that's tough. You've got to break through it. But after that, very few people experience hunger. So diet should be a simple thing. It's just been made complex and rather difficult to get at by lots of thoughts that have come in over the last few decades. Okay, which so kind of answers my next question. Yeah, it sounded like where you're going that the ketogenic diet would be almost the perfect diet, but it's not for, for diabetics, but it's not necessarily the case because you would think if you start mobilizing fat stores and utilizing fat for energy and you get rid of that fat around the organs, that maybe it'd be beneficial, but maybe it's not. Well, sure, but that's a sort of biological view of this. But as a doctor, I know there are two things to consider. One's a biology, you've got to understand that. The other are all the human factors. And it's those human factors that lead to the very clear-cut observations from very large studies and meta-analyses, that's banging studies together and looking at the overall picture. The amount of carbohydrate in the diet is not that important in determining weight, and it has no effect after 12 months. So that's fine. But if you are an enthusiast for low-carb diets and you follow up a group of people who stick with you, in other words, you're just analyzing the survivors who quite like a low-carbohydrate diet, then of course that will work. And this is the human bit. If the diet suits the person, it'll be quite good. 
So there's no one size that fits all. There's no one mix that fits all. But we've just got to break through the complex nonsense that's built up about nutrition. Yes, you need certain things. The basis of nutrition has not changed in the last 100 years. But beyond that, you've got wide latitude as to how to eat in such a way that the total calorie intake, the total energy intake is made right for your body. It's a question that kind of comes to mind is, you know, it seems like you have conclusive evidence that patients can take this into their own hands and work hard and cure their diabetes. Why do you think that physicians aren't necessarily pushing this harder with their patients? And most people kind of just accept that they live with type 2 diabetes from now on and they'll need medication. From personal experience, people in my life I've known, they just kind of accept that. And it just seems like you have such a good message to get out there. Yes. And this is a really important point. When someone comes along with a new idea in medicine, it will be reviewed with suspicion. And that's a good thing because, you know, we need to be certain of what we do in medicine, to be pretty sure about the information we're giving out. As Hippocrates said, at least do no harm. So when I come along, as I did in 2011, and said, look, type 2 diabetes, at least in the early years, can be set back to normal, and it's likely people will remain fine long-term, which was since shown, incidentally, it's immediately set upon. So there are all sorts of excuses offered as to how my data might have come about to create this illusion as people saw it. But it takes time for medical opinion to change. And so by 2016, the American Diabetes Association took down from its website the statement that dietary remission of type 2 diabetes is not possible. So five years were there. And four months ago, I was able to publish a consensus document under the leadership of the American Diabetes Association with doctors from the United States, Europe, and UK laying out the definition of remission. So you see, 10 years on from that publication, we've got acceptance of the notion. Now, spreading out into clinical practice will take a bit more time, but I've got some good news in that respect. First of all, doctors throughout the world have taken this up on an individual basis. So there are lots of pockets of this going on. But also in Britain, in the National Health Service, which famously is very conservative with what it will recommend and do, we've already got a type 2 diabetes remission service running. And so this has got the official backing in the UK. It'll be a while before other countries follow on. But the fact that this is recognized as being physiologically sound, it's entirely common sense. And also, it's associated with major economic advantages. That's a big driver for the NHS. You can see why it takes so long for this change to come about. And unfortunately, I have to add a rider to this answer. That is, some doctors see it as being a threat to their income. Now, that's an entirely mistaken belief. But they think if people with diabetes get rid of the diabetes, don't come back and see them, that would be a big loss. These people do need to carry on seeing their doctor with the diabetes. It's important that their weight is monitored. Although we know a lot about remission, if weight gain is avoided, you won't get your diabetes back in during the course of normal life. So all of that is fine. But you see, there are perverse incentives for some doctors not to follow this up. But I think the wagon's on the roll. It will happen now. And we're just seeing 
the very admirable conservative medical approach of being certain before a new idea is adopted. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And I think, it, like you said, things do take time. And I, there probably are many hurdles. You said, I mean, like the reverse incentives of doctors. And I imagine even pharmaceutical companies probably have a, may have a little bit of pushback. There's lots of drugs that are developed and on the market for treating diabetes. But I think long term, the more health conscious people start becoming and they realize they can kind of take their health and control their diseases, not just diabetes, but other diseases out there through diet and exercise, I think people will start to wake up and realize the importance of not just the medicine approach, but just the whole health diet exercise approach, which should be done in consultation with their doctors and routine checkups and getting blood work done on a routine basis and that sort of thing to check their overall health and then what, what they can do to change it long term. There's lots of hurdles, but I'm glad we're seeing progress. So you're seeing progress. And I think there's been lots, I don't know, I'm sure just outside of your patients that you work with, I'm sure you've gotten lots of feedback just from you know the books you've put out there. Can you tell us a little bit about the, if anybody wants to get more information from you or read about the work you've described to us today, how can they go about doing so? Yes. Well, there are two sources of information that people can easily access. The fuller description is in the book you've kindly mentioned, Life Without Diabetes. Now, that's published in the US by Harper One. It's readily available. And in that, I describe not only the story of working out the nature of type 2 diabetes, but also I describe the nuts and bolts of how to do it, even to the extent of having some recipes ongoing for people to follow. And that point's important because this isn't all about the low-calorie liquid diet. This is about the long-term. The low-calorie liquid diet is just getting from A to B. You've got to lose that weight. Once your body's been released from this drag weight of excess fat, then you've got to keep it like that. So turning the corner from the low-calorie liquid diet, getting back to normal eating is a class act and that has to be done carefully. Continuing in the long term to keep off the weight is a class act as well. So the book deals with all of that. And I have to mention that the royalties from this book go directly to Diabetes UK, which is a charity that funded that original study that I published back in 2011. So, you know, it's really important we keep this money being put to use in diabetes research. That's the fullest account, Life Without Diabetes. The second source is to go online to have a look at my website as part of Newcastle University. And the easiest way to get it is to type in go, G-O, dot N-C-L dot A-C dot U-K forward slash diabetes hyphen reversal. And that should take you straight to the university site on which I've put all the how to do it information. There's technical information for experts, but it's really aimed at the general public. Hopefully, people might be finding it useful as students of any sort of biology, veterinary medicine, certainly, medicine itself, yes. So, two big sources of information. Of course, there are lots of papers in the literature for professionals, but for the person with diabetes who wants to find out, hit Life Without Diabetes, published by Harper One, and I hope they'll find it an entertaining read and one that explains things with clarity. 
I learned a lot during this chat. I appreciate you so much coming on this show. Are there any final statements or thoughts that we haven't previously covered that you'd like to talk about or, you know, just involving your research or anything else? I think there are two things. One is just to mention exercise. Now, when people talk about weight loss, they often immediately flip into talking about exercise. For the population of people who are developing type 2, who are largely middle-aged, have already put on weight, exercise is a no-no. Many people have discovered for themselves, if they sign up to the gym and go regularly for a few weeks, their weight goes up. Now, we know why that is, because unconscious extra eating, compensatory eating, accounts for that. So, I just want to put exercise in proportion here. It's not something that will take you from A to B to lose this excess weight, but it is something that will help you keep the weight off in the long term. And many of our subjects have gone back to the sports of their youth. One particular person, no, several people do long-distance cycling. Some people have taken up badminton again. That certainly helps keep the weight off. So exercise, you've got to be careful how you use it, but in the long term, it's great. And of course, as a preventive move for someone of your age, yay, <laughs> keep doing it. <laughs> really good prevention. The second thing I'd mention is this myth that if a person isn't overweight, then their diabetes must be due to something else. No. If a person has type 2 diabetes, they've become too heavy for their body. That's based upon my medical observations. But the study that is going to back that up is currently being analyzed. The very last person will be studied this Friday. I hope it'll be published by the summer. So if you have something that looks like type 2 diabetes, get the weight off and also get substantial weight off. That's really the bottom line. Just real quick, I know we're running short on time. Just back to the BMI and if people are too heavy for their bodies, but it, do you see type 2 diabetes in people that maybe have, I mean, say a low 10% body fat composition, but they have, they're heavily muscled in that regard. Do you see type 2 diabetes and because they'll have a high BMI, although their body fat composition is low. And so is that something that's common? And in general, the answer is no, but you've touched on an interesting point there, Jeff, because you've gone straight to the heart of the matter. What is their percent body fat? And it's very clear to me now from even what I already know from the study that people who look slim and get type 2 diabetes have actually got a surprisingly high total body fat content. So if you're a big muscly guy with 10% fat, no, you're not at risk of diabetes. You might be in the range where in the office, your doctor might look at you and say, you know, you've got the obese range of BMI. Ha, doesn't matter. Just carry on playing the sport. So you ask a really good question. It's all about the fat. And some people who can look very thin, but in fact have a surprisingly high total body fat. Well, very interesting stuff. I'm glad you were able to join us. I'm glad we were finally able to you know, get you on the podcast. I think our listeners will thoroughly enjoy listening, just as Danielle and I enjoyed listening to you today. I learned a bunch. I'm definitely going to share it with all of my family and friends, as we do, I mean, every episode anyways, but especially this one. I think it's a ton of great information that everybody should hear. So thank you for taking the time and talking with us today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure, Jeff and Danielle. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast.
Everybody else, I just want to remind you again that although we don't say it much on the show, we do have show notes. And so the links that Roy mentioned today, I will put in the show notes so you don't have to worry about trying to go back and write down the links. Um, we'll put that there for you guys to click on and access. I'll put a link to his book and his website so you can get all the information that you need there as well. And again, just make sure to share this with family and friends, rate and review our show on wherever you can get podcasts and wherever you can rate and review them, primarily Apple Podcasts and Spotify, I think are probably the two biggest now that Spotify added that feature. So go do that for us. We appreciate it. And again, Dr. Taylor, thank you for your time. And we will talk to everybody on the next episode. Thanks, everyone. 